Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. If you're a guest with us, I hope you've been made welcome and made feel like family. If you've got a copy of God's Word, open it to Genesis 32. Got a lot before us. We've got going to get from Genesis 32 to Genesis 35 this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table and also some notes. I just wanted to just throw this out there. I think this would help. If you're, if you're a guest with us or if you're new, um, sometimes you may go to churches and, and churches preach topically and you're not really sure where they're going to be from week to week. This is just not the way we generally work here. We preach expositionally, which one of the things that means is we preach through a book of the Bible. So you always know where we're going. And so what would be well worth, if you don't already have one, we normally preach, uh, preach and teach out of the ESV because it's a literal translation. And this is probably a good investment for you. It's just the ESV study Bible. They put them on sale at Lifeway and, and different, at different times and different places. Um, but try to afford yourself a good study Bible and read ahead of us. You'll, you'll find you'll get so much more, especially out of a book like Genesis that is mostly narrative. If you'll read ahead of the story, because there's a lot in the narrative this morning, and I, and I can't focus so much on the narrative that we miss the point of the narrative. And I don't want to miss so much of the point of narratives to miss the beautiful story. So we can help each other if we'll read along in Genesis. Just make it part of your time with the Lord through the week. I think you'll see the the benefit of that. So Genesis 32, we're going to read verses 22 to 32, just as sort of our primary text this morning. So let's stand in honor of God's word. Genesis chapter 32, remember we pick up in the life of Jacob here. Jacob has, we've been through the the Jacob-Laban cycle, now he's leaving, going back home, and this is where we find ourselves in the narrative. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jaddok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of day. When the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why? Is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun arose upon him, and as he passed through Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of of the thigh. So Lord, as we read and as we recall to mind this amazing journey that we have been on that started in the garden and ends at the cross, we as your children today thank you for your grace. That grace that we have been singing about. That grace that chooses us. And never lets us go. So God help us to understand the story. Help us understand the context. Help us to understand what this meant for your people. Who initially read it. And then Lord help us apply it to ourselves. Lord we are in need of much this morning. And you are the all sufficient Savior. So come and give us wisdom. And give me clarity. And help us this day. So that we may make much of you. In Jesus' name, you can be seated. So do you remember, you don't have to turn there, Matthew 19. There was a rich man who came up to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember, Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. And the rich man said, eh, got it. 
all that I've done from childhood. And Jesus said, okay, well, just like one thing. Go sell everything that you have and come follow me. And you remember the result of that conversation. The young man turns away and walks away. And the scripture said, for he had much. And you remember that Jesus turned to his disciples and said, it's hard for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich to inherit God's kingdom. Why? What I want us to understand today, it is the damning nature of self-sufficiency. Sufficient people who assume they're in the kingdom of God and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is toxic. So we receive the kingdom of God, not by our works, but by His grace. So we're going to see today this amazing story. This story that begins by God's grace attacking Jacob. It attacks him. It changes his name and it blesses him. And yet, despite this experience, Jacob goes through much of his life and his spiritual life with a, with a very pragmatic approach to life. So we get this contrast in this story of Jacob's Spiritual life being, being emphasis more on pragmatism than dependence. This leads him to complacency and his sons to wickedness. But God, in spite of sin, God fulfills his promises. God continues to pour out his grace, though sometimes it was painful. And sometimes it was comforting. So what does this mean for the original audience that read this? And then what does it mean for us today? You see, this story is a parable. It actually happens, but it's a picture of a people in their whole life. As we see God's working out his purposes and his plans in the life of this man, Jacob. So we see that Israel, the nation, will struggle their whole existence until one day they emerge strong because not of their self, but because of the promised seed in the person of Christ. He will fulfill his promises. So what's the message for Jacob, what's the message for Israel? What's the message for us? Is it is to be strong in faith. It's to be weak in self-sufficiency. And so look at chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. So he's free of Laban. 20 years of that guy, he's done with him. <laughs> you know, good riddance. And quite honestly, Jacob leaves Laban and Jacob is loaded. His quiver is full. He has children. God has blessed him with children. And God has taken much of the flocks that were Laban and had given it to Jacob. And so he comes and he goes into the promised land. And he meets what I call border crossing agents. Now, you didn't know they had border crossing agents back then, did you? Well, look at the text. So he goes. Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahani. So Jacob getting fixing to cross over the promised land. And notice this is plural. It's not just one angel. He sees a host of angels. So much so that he says, we've got two camps here. We've got our camp and we have them. Psalms 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This should have been the message that he received from that. Should have been. Instead, he quickly forgets. Why? Because there is a big problem that's in his mind. You know, and he's got a name. What's his name? Esau. What's he going to do? If he, if he hated me 20 years ago, how does he feel about me now? And he's probably got the means now to do something about it. And 
what is this going to be? And all these what-if questions, these are what was in his mind. And so you see, you need to understand this nature problem here. Though of what he's seen spiritually with a host of angels waiting for him, there with him, instead he sees the problem, Esau. And he reacts. How does he react? Verse 3 to 6. He sends messengers to Esau. Says, hey, I'm, I'm coming. And the messengers come back and says, well, I get, we gave your message and Esau was coming. And oh, by the way, he has 400 men with him. <laughs> can imagine what he said. He had one of those uh-oh moments. What am I going to do? He's coming back. And the default is he's coming back to get me. And so what does he do? He takes a very practical approach to this thing. He divides his family. It's, if you read through the text, you'll see how he divides his family. It says some more about his nature. He divides his family, and so if they kill one, the other side of the family is going to get away. And then he prays. It's a beautiful prayer. One of the longest in the book of Genesis. Verses 9 to 12. Begins with the promises of God. Look what it says in verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hands of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And then in verse 12 he says, but you said, and he reminds God of the promises that he gave. This is, this is encouraging. We see growth in Jacob, and praise the Lord for it, because he's about 97 right now. I'm glad he's grown some. We see in verse 10, he says, I'm not worthy. Verse 11 and 12, he says, deliver me, I'm afraid. He reminds God of his promises. We can learn much from this, of how we should pray. So we would say, man, he gets up from that, prays for deliverance, and he says, I believe, therefore I go. Right? Well, sort of. What does he do? He gets 550 of his flocks. He puts them in sections, in five sections, and he sends them in waves to Esau. That's what he does. Why does he do it? Look at verse 20. Now he sends these animals in waves, and he sends servants along with them to deliver a message. He's talking to them, verse 20. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, this is what, this is what Jacob's thinking. The narrator is telling us what's in his mind. I may appease him with the presence that go ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. You see what he's doing. This is a very practical, pragmatic approach. What is, it? What is the verb here in I may appease is the word for atonement. It's the same idea of, uh, of what we teach of God propitiate for us. That we have the wrath of God on us for our disobedience. Christ, Christ sacrifices himself, therefore removing the wrath. And sh- that way God shows us favor, shows us grace. This is what he had in mind. Self-atonement for what he's done in the past. And so he sends them. Make no mistake what's happening here. He's making every effort in his own might to affect his situation. This is self-sufficiency. And listen, God's about to empty him of that. So, verse 22 to verse 24, he sends his family at night over the river and it says, Jacob, in the beginning of verse 24, he's left alone. So he thinks. And having been left alone, we see this first, that the Lord God wrestles with Jacob and gives him a new name. Look at his quote, Kent Hughes. Jacob had been and would continue to be the object of God's relentless grace. That an intrusive, tenacious, contending, renovating grace was at work on his life to make him to be the man God intended him to be. This grace could not be shut out, would not let him go, and fought with him and for him at every turn. So look at that quote with me and ask 
yourself the question, is this the way I see God's grace? Because, brothers and sisters, this is sovereign grace. What we've been studying. This is a grace that chose Jacob and never lets him go. And listen, God's grace will take you to the woodshed if he needs to. And this is what we see happening when we see this self-sufficient man is attacked by God. Look at verse verse 24. And a man, I want to put a man in quotation marks, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now I know that your mama told you not to start fights, but God started one right here. Jacob didn't initiate this fight. Jacob thought he was alone. And we see a man wrestled with him. This was an a all-night fight. <laughs> Jacob was a stubborn fellow. You remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, at the end of that, there was this discussion from Tumnus and Lucy. They were on the balcony looking out as Aslan was walking away and she was asking, where's he going? Why is he leaving us? Tumnus said, well, you know, Aslan's not a tame lion. Lucy said, yeah, but he's good. So, James Montgomery Boyce says this, listen, to Jacob, God was a benign, friendly, heavenly father figure to whom he could turn when things got rough but ignore when he wanted to order his own life and formulate his own plans. There was nothing to fear from God. Now he would discover to his horror that God would not be so used indefinitely. So God grabs a hold of Jacob in this all-night affair. Look, turn with me, or you can look at it on the screen. Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4. This gives us understanding of two things. Both what was going on to Jacob and what was going on in God's people who is reading this passage. Remember, Hosea is a book where Hosea is prophesying to a spiritual adulterous people. Here's what he says talking to them about Jacob. In the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. Listen, he wept and sought his favor. The word favor there is grace. This is the purpose of the fight. You see, Jacob's name is tied to this whole theme. The wrestler, the deceiver. So the wrestler is in the wrestling match of his life. This match would mark him for the rest of his life. Brothers and sisters, it is ridiculous to actually think the purpose of this text is to say that Jacob out-wrestled God. The God that created, the God that poured his wrath out on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed it. So we see as Christ humbled himself and took on the form of man, so here God Restrained himself for the purpose of refining and teaching Jacob. Verse 25 and 26. But when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So they were wrestling and daylight was coming and the man says, you need to let me go. See, at some point in this wrestling match, Jacob realized there's something supernatural going on here. This is not just a man. This is not one of Esau's boys here that's come to beat me down. This, there's something going on bigger than me. And so he goes from wrestling and then this divine one touches his hip, puts it out of socket, and yet we see he what? He won't let go. So now he goes from wrestling to clinging. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. 
And then a painful question. Verse 27. God asked him, Who are you? You ever looked in the mirror and asked that question? Who am I? God says, Who are you? And Jacob's confession by simply saying, Jacob. Jacob, I'm a deceiver. I'm a fraud. That's who I am. You see, his name divulged his character. This moment he realized, I've fought with man my whole life. And God says, no, you've been fighting with me. But now, but now, out of that but God moment in our life, he has a but God moment. But now, your name will be Israel. And so God changes his name. Verse 28. Then he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, but you have striven, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. And what does Israel mean? It can mean two things. One who strives with God. And God strives. So one who strives with God and one who God fights can mean either one. So what does it mean here? Yes, it means both. In this narrative, God strives against Jacob. Why? He is beating out of him his self-sufficiency. He attacks him in the dark and he leaves him crippled. So that Jacob might trust him. But remember what he said in Bethel? When he left, God says, I'll never forsake you, Jacob. Never. And he never did. And in this moment, this painful moment, that every time Jacob walked with his staff for the rest of his life, he would feel that hip and should remember. That this was God's grace. The time God's grace attacked him. God simply was fulfilling his promises. How did Jacob see this? Jacob names a place. Look at verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, saying, For I have seen God's face, God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Need to Listen to that. So we've, we, we have this warped view that what prevailing means is that I won the fight. No, God won the fight. This is what he says. He says, you want to see what Jacob took away from this experience? I've seen God face to face and I didn't die. So he names the place. You see, God was the object of the struggle. So he comes away, verse 31, delivered but lame. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Paul knows about this. Remember Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. What happened before this, you remember? Paul is caught up. He receives special revelation from God. Wow. Man, that's grace. <laughs> he receives something else. You remember? Spiritual, some kind of physical infirmity. He called it a thorn in the flesh. Verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the message. For Paul, this is the message for us. This is the message for Jacob. To be strong in faith is to be weak in self-sufficiency. This was the purpose of the fight. We only are a threat to the kingdom of darkness when we are humbly dependent upon our God. And I wish, brothers and sisters, that we could scroll the movies and Micah could come up and sing and we could, we, could, we could move right into application and worship God. This is the end of it. But it's not the end of it. 
It's not. Now we see the Lord's people grow complacent and then wicked. I told you this was a story. Starts off really good. (laughs) Chapters 33. We see Jacob still being a lot like Jacob, though he has changed. He's still got this default. Dividing his children, even putting... He puts Leah and her family in the front and Rachel and Joseph at the back. Look at verse 4. So he gets up from this life-changing experience and he sees Esau coming. Verse 4 says, But Esau ran to him, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. God, see... Got to get this this morning. God answered his prayer. He didn't have to buy off Esau. God had already softened Esau. This angry, indignant man bent on killing Jacob now is soft and gracious and generous. See, Jacob, who's proud, now he's humble. The tension is lifted. Now do they live happily ever after? No. No. You see, Esau tells Jacob, hey, come on back down to Seir with me. Jacob says, right behind you. Just need to rest my animals a little bit. Be right behind you. What does he do? Esau leaves. Jacob goes to suck him. Doesn't follow him. He had no intentions of following him. Brothers and sisters, Attention lifts from Jacob, and in verse 17, now he settles in. Settles in the socket. This is when we must be on our guard. This is when life, this is when your spiritual life is in the most danger. When the tension lifts. When God answers you. When the trial is over. This is when you're in most danger. Be on guard when the storm passes. We see the tragic results of half-hearted obedience and complacency. Verse 18 says, Then Jacob came safe into the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on the way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of the the land on which he had pitched his tent, and he erected and called it El Eloi Israel. And you would say, what's wrong with that? Do you know, he went to Succoth and he built some place for himself and settled in and now he goes to Shechem, he buys some land. He, he, he goes to church. He does, he, he builds an altar. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is in Genesis 28, 20 to 22, he made a vow to God. And here's what he says. You stay with me and you bring me back to my land. I will come to Bethel and I will worship you. And he settles in Shechem, 20 miles away. Oh, the danger of when things seem to be going so well. What are the sins of Jacob? Compromise. You see, Shechem was a very attractional compromise to Bethel because it laid at the crossroads of trade. This is is the way us pragmatic folks make decisions, isn't it? I got to have good care, take good care of my family. And besides, Shechem is, they got a lot of good jobs in Shechem. College students, wickedness begins with compromise. Begins there. And so we see him going from compromise of what God had said to complacency. Look at chapter 34, verses 1 and 2. The Bible leaves out nothing. <laughs> nothing that sometimes we would think they would leave out. This is what happened. Now, Dana, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Jacob, the son of Hamor, the Hevite, 
The prince of the land saw her. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Jacob's response, verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Question. Who was Dinah's father? Jacob was. Who was the patriarch of the family? Jacob was. Who was responsible to deal with this dramatic event? Jacob was. And yet, until verse 30, we hear nothing else from him. He hands this situation over to his sons to deal with it, and they deal with it all right. So don't you think for a minute that we are supposed to put this rape on Dinah. This one sets on Jacob because God had told Jacob to go to Bethel and he didn't do it. He compromised. Then he grows complacent and then his sons grow wicked. The wickedness of Jacob's family. Chapters 34 verses 6 and 7 records the response of Jacob's brothers when they hear that, his, that their sister has been raped. Jacob is nowhere to be heard from here. And Shechem and Homura says, Hey, no big deal. We'll, we'll pay for her. As a matter of fact, why don't we just all intermarry and we can... See, they had a plan too. Their anger and indignance is understandable. But how do they deal with it? They used God's covenant as a means of deception. They said, hey, you know, well, that sounds like a good idea. All y'all have to do is be circumcised. And then, you know, we'll let the marriages flow. Let this thing go. Exactly what happened. And what happens next can be described no other way than genocide. They go in and they kill all of the men. They loot the land and they take people captive. This is what happens. Later on, we see this cause blatant idolatry from their looting. Then in chapter 35, we see the oldest commits incest. These are the sins of the sons. Jacob is given the same mission that we are. That we are supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And instead, when they leave Shechem, they are a stench. They are a stench before the pagan nations. Will sin have the last word? Not on your life. Oh, we need to celebrate God's providential grace in our life that doesn't leave us in the midst of our sin and depravity. And neither would he then. Listen to this. Providence, more often than not, operates in the context of sinful behavior. Now we need to think about that because I'm not sure we all believe it. Providence, that is God working in the natural. Providence, more often than not, operates in the context of sinful behavior. That, that is, God in His providential grace is over it and works in spite of it. Listen, if God can only work through godly behavior, then there is little He can do in the sinful world. So praise God. That God's grace cannot be stifled. It cannot be derailed by the sinfulness of man. So in spite, we see the triumph of God's amazing grace in chapters 35. After all of this, after 10 years. Verse, chapter 35 verse 1, God said, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there, make an altar there. To God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household, to all who were with him, put away your foreign gods from among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the Lord God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. Praise God for repentance. For God, 
who prevailed, who calls his man on the carpet and says, go where I told you to go. Jacob looks out at his sons and worshiping foreign gods. We see repentance. We see purification. And in verse 9, we see God appears to him. God appeared to, to Jacob again, whom he said from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you, your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And so he says to Jacob, he appears to him, he says, remember who you are. You're not Jacob anymore. You're Israel. I've chose you. I've changed you. Remember who you are. He says, Israel, you are not supposed to be known for what you can do, but in whom you trust. Turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul has went to great lengths to talk about the reality that we are in Christ because of His work on the cross and through the resurrection. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own. What is not of your own? What's the this? That you're saved by grace through faith. None of it's your own doing. None of it. It is all a gift of God. It is not because of anything that you can do so that you have nothing to brag about. Remember who you are, Jacob. And listen, remember who I am. Verse 11, And God said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company from, of nations shall come from you, and the king shall come from your own body. This is El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. So if you wonder, where does this sovereign grace come from? It comes from His very name. His very character says, I am powerful and I am sovereign. Therefore, I always fulfill my promises. This is what we trust in. This is what He reminds everyone. Remember who you are because of who I am. I am the God who fulfills His word. Brothers and sisters, this is from whence we work we labor, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in. Think about this. He tells Jacob, From your depraved sons shall come nations and shall come kings. Now that's grace. That's grace. Listen to me. Self-sufficiency damns you. It does not save you. I do, therefore I am, is dead religion. I am, therefore I do. Now that's Christianity. I'm Christ. I'm in Him and He's all powerful. So I cannot be stopped. God says, I am, therefore you are. Therefore be fruitful and multiply. Do you see that? This is all depending on Him, not us. You are, I am. So verse 12, I will. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. I will give the land and to your offsprings after you. The result is Jacob worshipped. He worshipped. Verse 14, and Jacob set up a pillar in that place and he spoke with him in a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. This is amazing. You remember when he started this thing, he saw the vision of the, of the, of the ladder that was on the ground and angels are ascending and descending. Think about his life. Last 30 years, they've been pretty busy doing exactly what God promised them, promised him he would do. They've been active in his life. God's promises 30 years later remained unbroken. He kept his word. Despite the self-focus, despite the self-sufficiency, despite the half-hearted obedience, God's grace had its way. And listen, sometimes the grace of God in Jacob's life rained down like a light mist, and sometimes it poured like a torrent. 
and it fed his soul and it etched his soul. God made him who God intended him to be. So the life of Jacob is really about an almighty God that poured out his grace on a people and on a nation despite their sinfulness to display the wonder of his grace. So what today? Got a lot of questions there and I planned on going through them and the Lord sort of wrecked my own heart this morning and I want to look at the first one for sure. Is my faith characterized by practical pragmatics or absolute dependence? You see, we, we see life in mostly in one of two ways. We see life in my physical situations in light of my own abilities to deal with it. And, and so we make decisions like this. Where do I want to go to college? Well, here's the pros, here's the cons. Where do I want to work? Well, here's the pros, here are the cons. Who do I date? Well, this is what's good about them. This is what's bad about them. I make the best decisions, what seems the best to me. I'm doing what's within my ability, my, my, what's in my tool bag. I, I got that. Is it fit? That's what I got. This is pragmatic. This was Jacob's lifelong default. Or do we see life and our physical situations in light of my inability and God's ability. You see, we are deceived if we think we can accomplish the mission of God on our own. And I think, I just want to get to that in a minute. This is the problem. That's why we live in the shallow end of the pool. Because we don't want anything to to challenge our pragmatic thinking, you see. Because when we begin to realize God has... Infinite power, infinite resources, infinite, infinite wisdom. Then through my inability and his ability, he can bring about his glory and my good by using my life to accomplish his purposes. Now that's Christianity. That's what we've been called to do. And this is not prag- pragmatics. is characterized by, by news. I saw this in the, on the news the other day. Some guy, I think he had an outstanding warrant or something. He gets pulled over to, to be arrested. He didn't know what else to do, so he pulls in his wallet and he had a get-out-of-jail-free card he gave to the, the cop. And I think he thought he got him on the Internet, you know, <laughs> the way I found it. I don't think he, didn't, he still got arrested. You treat your spiritual life that way? If you do, that's pragmatic Christianity. I need, I tried, so now I pray. I got caught, so what else can I do? My marriage is in trouble, so now God's church is important. My kids are rebelling, so now I need to put the gospel in the middle of our home. And now, now the gospel needs to be my mission and not the kids. Faith in Christ is not a flu shot or a safety net. The Bible is clear, brothers and sisters. He is your life or He is nothing. And yet, in the midst of that, cannot we all look back and say, I praise God for His pursuing grace. Pursued me, despite myself. Am I living in absolute dependence? Why is absolute dependence so hard? Listen, this is not a word, but it should be. Missionlessness breeds self-sufficiency. We read devotions that focus on us. We listen to the radio that has music and it focuses on us. Everything about Christianity is what we get bombarded with has me focusing on me, that I'm the center, and so I use Christ like I would any other resource that I have. God will not be used that way. We do that. Because we have lost as God's people while we are here. God's given us a mission. Our mission is not just to survive. He's not given us a mission that just to keep our, 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 our chin barely above water. He tells us, you exist to make Christ followers of all peoples until I call you home. He was, Jacob was 97 when he started figuring this out. 
mission breeds urgency. And urgency breeds dependence. Had a conversation. I just want to be real for a couple minutes and we'll be done. We need to deal with this, brothers and sisters. I had lunch with an African-American pastor who's fixing to plant a multi-ethnic church. And we were just talking. He's going through some of the same things that we went through at the beginning. And we were talking about that. And we were celebrating the oneness that we have in the gospel, but we were weeping over what God's church looks like because it does not look like heaven. Why do I tell you that? Because I went home, went back to the office, and I said, oh God, that's, that's impossible. How are we going to do that? Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. You feel it? That if you see the lostness of that person's soul, you realize, I can't save them. I can't. I can't give them a rules to follow. I can't give them a to-do list that's going to make them right before God. I can do only one thing. I give them the gospel and God saves. This is dependence. We depend on God for everything. And it's more than just that He fills your prescriptions and puts food in your pantry. It is that the God is the very center of the mission of why we exist. There are lost people in this world. They're on your kids' ball teams and on their dance clubs. We grab hold of the urgency of the mission and we will find ourselves on our face before God to do what only He can do. This is my prayer for us. Ephesians 5, you don't have to turn there. The churches went through this before as when God began to work in, in the, amongst the disciples who were Jewish people and God began to save the Gentiles. They become in the church. And what did they say? Well, that's fine for you to come into our Jewish Christian church as long as you change all that about you. You remember this struggle called the Jerusalem Council and here's what they said. We believe that we're saved just like them by grace. So quit trying to make them change being a Gentile because they have received Christ by faith and now the wall is down. We are united in Christ in the midst of our diversity. God's church was one of one impossible reality. The gospel is powerful enough to unite us. May we not forget that because, brothers and sisters, we are given a promise in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know, that I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There is coming a day like Jacob had, when we shall see God face to face. And I wonder, is that the longing of your heart? Because... For the gospel, for Christ, for Christianity, for what He gave His people. Urgency of mission and longing to be with our God and see Him run together. The more we express one, the more we long for the other. I love 1 Corinthians 13 because it is the what? Anybody know? It's a love chapter. It talks about what love is. Does it? Think about that. I had one guy tell me that one time. He said, Ephesians 5 says that, that love is, in its very nature, is to provide and to protect. It is to nurture and to cherish. So what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, God is love. God, by His very nature, provides and protects. He nurtures and cherishes His own. And so 1 Corinthians 13 just tells us what, it, what happens when what love is begins to work. Love is these things. Love does these things. Why? Because it's who God is. And because we're in Christ, it's who we are. And so that's what we long for. That's what he says. Oh, when we get to heaven, we're going to see him. He's promised us this. And he's never broken a promise. So one day, we will stand before our God and we will worship Him with every tribe, with every nation, and with every tongue. And we will serve Him together forever.
You looking forward to that? Then be about your father's business. So God, we feel like Jacob, we are not worthy to pray to you. We're not worthy to come to you. We're not worthy to sing to you, but Christ. Lord, we celebrate the fact that everything that is good about me is outside of me. That has been given to me by you. The Father of lights. So God, would you give us your people the same love for our neighbors and nations that you have. We can't produce that, God. Give it to us. That we see it. Oh, God, I pray for our students. Many of them are going to college. They're being dropped right in the middle of Shechem. Oh, God, open their eyes to see the lostness. We've got the answer. So God, you must be this to us before we can then offer this to others what's not true of ourselves. So Lord, may you ravish us by your grace. Oh God, if you have to mark us like you did Jacob and like you did Paul, Paul would say, it was worth it. Just that I might know you that I might reflect you. So Lord, thank you for your promises and your work in our life and in your world. And so Lord, now we stand and worship you for your grace. God's people said, amen. Stand with us.